From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. That dumpster fire known as the first presidential debate may still be burning in our minds, but it is overshadowing a very important congressional hearing held that very same day about white supremacists working as police officers. We speak to Professor Gerald Horn and feature voices from the hearing. And anyone saying that you can train away racism, they're wrong. You cannot train away racism. You need to weed it out. You need to fire them and terminate them if they're officers. And the Bolivian diaspora returns to the scene of the crime, and that is the Organization of American States, which spearheaded a military coup in 2019 that ousted President Evo Morales and installed a fascist regime. The popular movement of Bolivians wants fair elections, which they know they can win, for me to see that the government is massacring our indigenous people in Bolivia, I can't just stay quiet. I need to speak up. And this is the only way I can uh, through the elections. Mm-hmm. So I, what I ask, and I think a lot of many people ask, regardless of whether you are right or left, we ask for a fairness election. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital, I'm Esther Averam. Well, Donald Trump has tested positive for coronavirus, according to a tweet he sent out just before 1 a.m. on today, Friday, October 2nd. He said that Melania Trump has also tested positive and that they both are beginning a quarantine and recovery process immediately. The positive test came hours after Trump announced that one of his top aides, Hope Hicks, also tested positive. Trump consistently downplays the seriousness of the virus mocks scientific advice, and holds large, tightly packed campaign events, including on the grounds of the White House during this year's Republican National Convention. Neither Trump, his staff, nor attendees at these rallies routinely wear masks or practice social distancing. The positive test will mean at least 14 days of quarantine, just as Trump is entering the final month of campaigning before the November 3rd election. Some believe the vote will be a referendum of his handling of the pandemic, which has killed more than 207,000 Americans and infected more than 7 million. More on Trump's long week later in the show. On Thursday, the House of Representatives passed a smaller version of its coronavirus relief bill, the HEROES Act, which restarts that 600 a week in supplemental unemployment aids small businesses, states, and cities. But congressional reporters say that approval by the Senate and White House is unlikely, even more unlikely before the election, as another 1.4 million Americans filed new claims for unemployment for the week ending September 26th, and companies including Disney, Allstate, United Airlines, and American Airlines announced plans recently to fire or furlough more than 60,000 workers. In Black Lives Matter news, Prince George's County, Maryland, will pay $20 million to settle a lawsuit brought by the family of William Green, a black man who was fatally shot in January by a police officer while handcuffed behind his back in a patrol car, according to the county. The officer, who authorities say shot him, 
Michael Owen Jr., was charged with second-degree murder. Mr. Owen, who is black, has pleaded not guilty and awaits his day in court. And as D.C. schools still debate if and how in-person learning will begin, students and activists consider the presence of police officers in schools. Chantel James has more. With the D.C. Council recently voting to end MPD's contract with D.C. public schools under the pressure of movements to defund police, and keeping in mind the upcoming October 15th hearing on the police reform legislation introduced this summer, the ACLUDC and Black Swan Academy partnered for a conversation on achieving police-free schools. Natasha Knapper of Stop Police Terror Project moderated a dialogue between Samantha Davis of Black Swan Academy and London Jones, an 11th grader and student organizer at Anacostia High School. They highlighted the harms caused by the presence of police in D.C. schools and laid out steps towards the vision of police-free schools in the district. London talks about what he would say to those who doubt the possibility of schools without police. First of all, I was thinking the same way that these people are thinking, like, without the police, what if somebody just wants to come in my school and, like, hurt us? But then during my summer program, there was this assignment, and it was about, like, what we think about the police in our community and things like that. And so it was with the MPD. And so this lieutenant called me and he was telling me, like, well, if we're not there, who's going to protect you? Things like that. And it was like a fear tactic making me think that, Mm -hmm. oh, well, if they're not here, then who will keep me safe? And it's like, we keep us safe regardless. Mm -hmm. Because the police there, they're still not keeping us safe because they're incarcerating us. They're hurting us. They're abusing us. So it's at this point where it's like them not there is the better alternative than them being there. The panelists discussed the school-to-prison pipeline that the physical presence of police in schools becomes part of and the disproportionate impact the criminalization of young people has on black and brown youth. They suggested that proposed alternatives to metal detectors, officers, and other police presence in school lie with the community approach. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. In environmental news, members of a new group, Law Students for Climate Accountability, just released a new report revealing that the top 100 legal firms in the United States are accelerating the climate crisis through their litigation, transactions, and lobbying on behalf of polluters. And a new report released Wednesday by Friends of the Earth, Public Citizen, and Bailout Watch shows how the U.S. government provided a safety net for the flagging fossil fuel industry. Titled Big Oil's 100 Billion Bender, it reveals how oil and gas companies have issued nearly $100 billion in bonds since the Fed launched its corporate rescue program in March, a no-strings-attached bailout of the fossil fuel industry pushed by the Trump administration. And finally, in culture and media, a near-complete media blackout of the London trial of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange continues, resulting in a dearth of news on this attack on press freedom and this attack on a foreign journalist for exposing U.S. war crimes. 
Judge Vanessa Barritzer is suddenly in a huge hurry, it seems, and has demanded that the entire hearing wrap up by the week ending October 10th. She is limiting individual witness testimony to a half hour and is now forcing exclusion of numerous defense witnesses, including the scholar and prolific author Noam Chomsky. At the same time, Judge Barritzer said she'll rule in early January 2021, until which time Assange will remain at Belmarsh Prison. Back in D.C., poet Kevin Young has been tapped to be the next director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Young, who is director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture and poet editor of The New Yorker, is slated to start work on January 11, 2021. And D.C. poet Joseph Ross will host a Zoom launch of his new book, Raising King, on October 3rd at 3 p.m. Check on Facebook events under Raising King, Joseph Ross, and Katie Ritchie for more information about the launch. In This Week in History, October 2, 1967, Thurgood Marshall was sworn in as the first African-American Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. He served until 1991 and was known for opposing discrimination and the death penalty and for championing free speech and civil liberties. On October 5, 1986, former U.S. Marine Eugene Hassenfuss was captured by Nicaraguan Sandinistas after a plane carrying arms for the Nicaraguan rebels or Contras was shot down over Nicaragua. This marked the beginning of the Iran-Contra controversy resulting in congressional hearings and a major scandal for the Reagan administration after it was revealed that money from the sale of arms to Iran was used to fund covert operations in Nicaragua. And those are headlines and happenings for today. Stay with us. Organization of American States building uh, where there's an action today in support of the Bolivian people's right to vote and I'm here with Gustavo Vargas. Tell us about your organization and why people came out today. The organization is called Parlamento de los Pueblos or the People's Parliament and it's a grassroots Bolivian immigrant and uh, descendants of Bolivians based in Northern Virginia and the DMV area. And it's a group of people that came together to support Bolivian people, our brothers and sisters in Bolivia, 
after the coup d'etat orchestrated by the U.S. and the right-wing extremists in Bolivia against Evo Morales in November 2019. So I noticed that you have certain demands, and one of them is for Congress to investigate the role of the OAS in its false report about the last election. Who have you reached out to, and what do you think the Congress can do about it? There are several letters going around that amongst the notable senators and congresspeople, we have Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, signing these letters directed to Mike Pompeo. There's uh, three letters. The first one was raising awareness of possible human rights violations by the de facto regime that was unconstitutionally positioned in Bolivia, and that letter went around in November. Then about three months ago, there was another letter denouncing that same, the, the same statements, plus all the massacres that occurred in November of 2019 against indigenous people in Bolivia. And these massacres were perpetrated by the Añez regime. And then the third letter that is running, roaming around in, in uh, Congress, also directed to Mike Pompeo, is raising awareness of how the OAS was fundamental in the role of ousting Evo Morales by force. In other words, the coup d'etat against Evo Morales because the OAS issued a report making allegations that there was fraud in the October 2019 elections, which by now has been proven false by many, many independent studies, statistical and, uh, and analysis that are proving that this OAS report is flawed and is biased. And at the head of this OAS report is the secretary of the OAS, Luis Almagro, which we all know by now has a right-wing agenda. You all want to make sure that the upcoming elections are free and fair. I understand that there have already been people disqualified from voting, uh, that the Añez regime is already trying to, just like here, you know, uh, voter suppression and keep people from voting there. Yeah, it seems like the, uh, there's a script in the right-wing regimes across the world where they want to pretty much suppress the people from voting. And they want to do everything they can to avoid the people from elect democratically choosing their governments. So what the Arrhenius regime has done is, first off, because they are an interim presidency, they were supposed to hold elections within 90 days of the time they took power. That didn't happen. Secondly, when they announced the elections for May, they conducted voter registration that was completely rigged because it was understaffed and the technology just wasn't there, and that was rigged. Then they postponed the elections of 2019 by uh, uh, the excuse was the pandemic, and she postponed the elections three times. And only because of mobilizations of the indigenous people, once again, the indigenous people coming and asking for real democracy, only after that, they sign a law saying that the elections are going to be held October 18th of this year. But since then, the Añez regime also got rid of a bunch of names that were originally able to vote, and most of them from immigrants across the world. It's, it's important to understand that the Bolivian diaspora is gigantic. It's almost a million people that are distributed across the world. In, in the Washington, D.C. area, it's one of the biggest diasporas. 15,000 people, 15,000 Bolivians were registered to vote in 2019. And out of those 15,000 people in the U.S., 
11,000 were registered to vote in the DMV area, and they got rid of 3,000 of those names without proper justification, and with only two days to complain about it and try to get your name back. And with the embassies and the consulates closed, there's pretty much no way for the people. And there's studies, statistical studies, proving that this affects the left party, leftist party, mass IPSP, from winning uh, or from obtaining any sort of gain in this election. Okay. And then the other day, Bolivian Canciller de la República, Karen Longerich, she announced that we weren't going to be uh, allowed to vote in Virginia, in uh, Santa Fe, Argentina, and she didn't even really give any proofs as to why Virginia and Santa Fe, Argentina, didn't weren't allowing Bolivian elections to be held in their jurisdictions. Now that's still up in the air. There's no real facts about it. And it seems like an attempt for them to demotivate voters uh, from going to the polls. Pretty much uh, misinforming voters. Oh, okay, because even though you're in the U.S., you have a right to vote in the election. And so you're saying that 3,000 of the 15,000 people in the U.S. who should be able to vote have been eliminated from voting. 5,000 of the 15,000. Oh. 3,000 of the 11,000 just in this area. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I've been speaking to Gustavo Vargas. Uh, thank you, Gustavo. Hey, my name is Yair, um, and I'm here today supporting the Bolivian, Virginia, DMV, uh, diaspora. Um, I myself identify as indigenous Aymara Quechua and I'm just out here making sure that the voices of my people are heard, um, that the diaspora are heard um, in terms of their demands of which are, you know, demanding free elections, um, demanding that they have a vote in the exterior and also demanding that the OAS and the Bolivian interim government um, don't manipulate or don't tamper with the elections. Um, so I'm here today just supporting them and their voices. Well, I just came out here to support uh, because I see a lot of injustice happening in Bolivia to our indigenous people. Mm -hmm. I am half indigenous and I know I haven't been in Bolivia for many years and uh, I'm from here, United States, but in the end of the day, I feel like I have a moral obligation to support our indigenous people in Bolivia or anywhere in and uh, that we have a lot of property. So, you know, uh, for me to see that, that the government is massacring our indigenous people in Bolivia, I can't just stay quiet. I need to speak up. I need to be able to say something. And this is the only way I can do uh, through the elections. Mm -hmm. So I, what I ask, and I think a lot of many people ask, regardless of whether you are right or left, we ask for a fairness election. Mm -hmm. So today I just came here just to mock the uh, right side, just because, you know, they're over there in Santa Cruz. I know they're angry. They don't want the mass to participate. Uh, but in the end of the day, you know, there has to be a fairness for both parties to participate. They can't just go there and lock themselves and uh, pretend that, you know, uh, that they're the only ones uh, in Bolivia that have the saying. We have a saying, too. Everybody in Bolivia has the saying. And we think uh, to be fairness election, both parties need to participate. Presente, 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 presente,
You have been listening to Voices at a Protest Tuesday, September 29, 2020, outside the Organization of American States in Northwest D.C. The OAS played a pivotal role in engineering a military coup that toppled the democratically elected government of President Evo Morales of Bolivia and the installation of a fascist regime that has massacred indigenous people there. New elections are scheduled for October 18, 2020, and Senator Bernie Sanders and 30 Democrats sent a letter to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo urging the State Department to pursue a quote-unquote full independent review of the Organization of American States regarding its actions in Bolivia. It added, quote, the U.S. Congress appropriates the majority of the OAS budget. We therefore have a responsibility to ensure that American taxpayer dollars are used to support organizations that function transparently and that uphold democratic norms rather than undermine them, end quote. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is America. Don't got you slipping up. Look how I'm living up. Police be tripping up. Yeah, this is America. Guns in my area. I got the strap. I got to carry them. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go into this. Yeah, yeah, this is Gorilla. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go get the bag. Yeah, yeah, or I'ma get the pad. Yeah, yeah, I'm so cold like, yeah. Yeah, I'm so dull like, yeah. We gon' blow like, yeah. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, on September 29, 2020, the House Oversight and Reform Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties hosted a remote hearing on white supremacists infiltrating police departments. On this show, we will hear from retired homicide detective from St. Louis, Heather Taylor, also a video production created, we believe, by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And we will begin with the chairman of the subcommittee, Representative Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland. In 2006, the FBI released an intelligence assessment warning of, quote, white supremacist infiltration of law enforcement. The FBI identified two distinct problems. First, the FBI noted the problem of white supremacist groups infiltrating law enforcement. We've seen a lot of evidence of that in the 14 years since the FBI's assessment as officers across the country have been dismissed for active membership in the KKK and other similar groups. The FBI also identified a second problem law enforcement officers who have no formal affiliation with racist groups, but who sympathize with their racist ideology. This too has been in plain view in this period of resurgent racist violence across America. In 2019, a team of investigative journalists published the Plain View Project, which collected over 5,000 postings displaying white supremacist, xenophobic, misogynistic, and violent Facebook material from police officers in eight different cities. We invited the FBI to come today. The Bureau refused to come, claiming it has nothing to say because they have no evidence that this is a widespread problem demanding the FBI's attention. What's more, they've attempted to disavow their own 2006 intelligence assessment, which has every sign of being an authentic document. They did provide us an unredacted version of that 2006 assessment, which I'm releasing today so the public can better understand how the FBI understood this threat and judge its subsequent 
actions or lack thereof accordingly. The redacted passages include prescient warnings for the American people. The FBI warned that, quote, white supremacist infiltration of law enforcement can result in abuses of authority and passive tolerance of racism within communities served. The FBI also cautioned that police officers who are hostile to civil rights might, quote, volunteer their professional resources to the white supremacist causes with which they sympathize. These are chilling conclusions. But rather than clearly spell out this threat for the American people, the FBI has suppressed them from public view for 14 years. For the first time, we can now see that the FBI believed internally that white supremacist infiltration of law enforcement departments was a serious problem, a source of potential abuse of power and authority on the street, and a source of potential violence against the civilian population. This summer, as the country was shocked to watch videos depicting the brutal and vindictive treatment of Black Lives Matter protesters, other videos emerged of police officers treating armed white militia as friends and as allies. In Salem, Oregon, police gave a polite warning to a group of armed white men asking them to discreetly stay inside the buildings after curfew so it would not look like police were playing favorites when they tear gas protesters. In Albuquerque, officers were caught on a police scanner referring to white vigilantes as armed friendlies. In Kenosha, Wisconsin, officers pushed protesters towards a group of armed white civilians. Police offered water to those armed men, one of whom Rittenhouse got away despite walking up to police with his hands in the air, the murder weapon strapped to his chest, while onlookers identified him as the killer of two innocent Americans. The social contract depends on fair and neutral enforcement of the laws to protect the whole citizenry against criminal violence and state violence. We must work to disentangle the police power of the state from groups and individuals that subscribe to violent white supremacist ideology and seek to inflict harm on African Americans, Asian Americans, Latinos, Jewish Americans, LGBTQ Americans, and anyone who stands in the way of race war and the civil war that the extreme right is calling for in America today. If local or state law enforcement were being infiltrated by ISIS or by Al Qaeda or any other terrorist group, we would consider it an immediate public safety emergency. Infiltration by violent white supremacy is no less of a threat and no less urgent. To confront it effectively, we must understand it that is the purpose of today's hearing. Check out these social media posts. It's a good day for a chokehold. Or hope that this piece of S is dealt with by street justice or just playing karma quickly, hopefully by police gunfire. Or F these Muslim, well, you can read it. Bad in any situation, right? But what have I told you that all those inflammatory words were posted by current or former police officers in Phoenix, in Philadelphia, and in St. Louis. They're just a sampling found by a new study called the Plain View Project of officers around the country using social media to endorse violence against criminals, defendants, blacks, Muslims, women. The study canvassed the postings of more than 3,500 current or former officers in eight jurisdictions of various sizes and geographic areas. It found posts that appear to endorse violence by officers or members of the public, show bias against minority groups, 
use dehumanizing language, calling protesters or people of color animal or savages. And the attitude went beyond mere words, a deeper dive into the records of officers here in Philly, where posts were flagged, found that almost one third of those individuals have been subjects of civil rights and brutality complaints, many ending in settlements or verdicts for the plaintiffs. Officers wanting to ram people with Obama bumper stickers, others calling those in the Black Lives Matter movement racist pieces of explicitives. There's sexism, bigotry, even threats of violence and calls for executions of protesters, all allegedly written by sworn officers. We turn out of this story. Tonight, three Wilmington, North Carolina police officers have been fired after a routine audit of a patrol car camera uncovered what authorities describe as extremely racist comments toward African-Americans. Here's CBS's Jeff Pegues. An internal probe by the Wilmington Police Department reveals hate-filled conversations with three veteran officers. Officer Kevin Piner is heard telling Corporal Jesse Moore that the protest would soon lead to a civil war and that he is ready. He goes on to tell Moore that he was going to buy a new assault rifle and soon we are just going to go out and start slaughtering them expletive N-words. Piner says a civil war is needed to wipe them off the expletive map. That'll put them back about four or five generations. Later during a phone call with Piner, Moore refers to a woman he arrested as the N-word and says she needed a bullet in her head right then. Donnie Williams is the department's new police chief. He fired the officers on his first day. When you talk about killing people and generations of people, that is disturbing. According to investigators, the officers blame their comments on the stress of today's climate in law enforcement. A veteran San Antonio police officer fired over his treatment over a, of a criminal trespass suspect last summer. Yeah, that officer caught on his own body-worn camera repeatedly using the N-word and other profanities during the arrest of a young black man. Caught on a police body camera, an Aurora officer uses a horribly racist slur. The Alabama porch monkeys off the team. We're going to begin with swift action from police chief James Craig, a rookie Detroit police officer fired over his post on Snapchat. Thanks for being with us for the news at five. Chief Craig says Officer Sean Bostwick will be off the payroll effective tomorrow morning. That's after he posted this photo to Snapchat with the caption. Here's the quote. Another night to wrangle up these zoo animals in reference to Detroit residents. If we want to improve police community relations, we would do all that we possibly can do to root out officers who have a bent toward white supremacist ideology. Hey, my name is Heather Taylor. I recently retired last Friday. I was a 20-year veteran of the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. I was a detective sergeant in the homicide section. However, I'm speaking on behalf of the Ethical Society of Police. The Ethical Society of Police was founded in 1972 to fight racial discrimination in our community and our police department. We have approximately 325 members in the St. Louis City, St. Louis County, and Ferguson area. We are roughly 97% African-American. I'm here to give my perspective on white supremacist ideologies and white supremacist sympathizers in law enforcement. The FBI report from 2006 about white supremacist infiltration in law enforcement, the Plainview Project, which affected our police department greatly, which exposed racist content by police officers and numerous other reports 
are clear examples. We have a problem with white supremacy and racism in law enforcement. I want to provide my perspective by telling a true story. For nearly seven years, I have repeatedly reported an officer for his racism. I learned this officer had a penchant for making racist statements about black people on social media. He once stated, black people are pathetic. He also cheered a black man being shot in the head, posting, you can take him out of the ghetto, but you can't to take the ghetto out of him. A black woman accused him of saying only prostitutes and drug dealers own Bentleys. Another time, he made a racist statement about black people and welfare. This officer was also reported for racial profiling by a citizen. He's also a field training officer, training hundreds of officers within our police department. He's never been fired for these um, statements and these complaints, despite people like myself, who's a sworn officer and citizens making these complaints. These statements were not the worst of his actions. This officer and other officers killed a black man under questionable circumstances in 2012. I was a scene investigator on that case. That case haunts me to this day. He used a banned chokehold. Another officer tased his man six times, six times. The officer violated numerous policies. A witness said that one of the officers used the N-word during this incident. Others stated the victim resisted arrest. The use of the N-word, all witness statements relayed to me, all questionable actions by the officers were placed in a police report, an official document. The report was turned over to the Internal Affairs Division for review for criminal charges or discipline. I was told the officers were returned to full duty. No charges were filed. Just couldn't believe it. So I delivered a copy of the police report to the circuit attorney's office in 2013, months after the case was finally done. I just couldn't believe that there were no charges, there was nothing. To this day, I don't know if a grand jury ever reviewed the case for, for any form of charges. I don't know the discipline of that case. In 2020, the same officer that used that banned chokehold made us insensitive Facebook post about another black man. This time it was George Floyd. It was about chokeholds and his belief that George Floyd's murder was justified. I believe more extensive background checks are necessary with hiring. I believe immediate termination and removal of police certifications of officers that support white supremacy that are corrupt in any way, that these officers should be removed immediately. And it is clear in anyone saying that you can train away racism, they're wrong. You cannot train away racism. You need to weed it out. You need to fire them and terminate them if they're officers. I also believe that whistleblower protections need to become a priority. I've risked my life by reporting officers. I've received death threats from officers, officers liking the idea of me bleeding out on a call by myself. It's impossible to break the blue code of silence if there are no protections in place that empowers officers to come forward. I would like to also state that in 2017, a black officer, Milton Green, grew up from in the inner city, survived, became an officer. He was shot in 2017 by a white officer. There were racial undertones about that incident. 
That was in 2017. Three months later, Detective Luther Hall was brutally beaten, in his own words, like Rodney King, by four white St. Louis City police officers. Those officers have been federally indicted. I would also like to state that COVID-19 is the leading cause of death for police officers and suicide. The leading cause of death, we are losing officers by COVID-19 and suicide. We have had 45 officers this year, unfortunately, including Officer Tamaris Bohanan, who was shot and killed, that have been shot and killed or died um, by force, use of force. I think it's important to address that uh, sympathizing with white supremacy is a problem within our law enforcement um, communities. That is a reality. And what we see with the officer that I'm speaking about in my example is that he is a field training officer. He's training other officers to become officers. There's no way that he should have been allowed to continue in this field. I would also like to add in, in this that there was a recent study by the city group that listed that $16 trillion is a result of racism in our country. $16 trillion. That's what we have as a result of racism in our country. And that includes law enforcement and the settlements that have been made uh, regarding racist officers and sympathizers within our police department. is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Ivarum. and it could be that people here in the u.s and around the world are still reeling from that first televised meeting of the 45th president and former vice president joe biden an event considered to be a global embarrassment and referred to by cnn analysts as a hot mess inside a dumpster fire inside a train wreck and as an s show During the 90-minute Fox News production, Trump made an open appeal to violent right-wing militia groups, especially the Proud Boys, to stand by now, during, and after the November 3rd national elections. But more digging into that day's news would have revealed far more damning testimony at the most recent congressional hearing on white supremacists in the nation's public institutions, this time looking at police departments. But with the weekly ratcheting up of economic, public health, and government chaos here in D.C., will this week be one for the books, or maybe we haven't seen nothing yet? Here to help us unpack it all is our geopolitical analyst, the prolific author and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. 
Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Well, thank you. So let's dive right in. I know you've been commentating since Tuesday, but maybe there's a little more to say with a few days hindsight about, I want to call the geriatric theatric. How's that? <laughs> um, and also that day's uh, hearing in Congress. Well, the hearing in Congress was very important, profoundly important, this matter of white supremacist infiltration into U.S. police departments. There was a split with many of the Republicans taking the line that, yes, there were a few bad apples in police departments, but Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez taking the position back by others that what we're really dealing with is a matter of systemic racism. And interestingly enough, just before this congressional hearing, the Brennan Center at New York University issued a report that detailed the point that of the 18,000 plus police departments and law enforcement units in the United States of America, a significant percentage have been infiltrated, if not taken over, by the white supremacists and white nationalists. And in terms of the hearing, some of the most riveting testimony was provided by a recently retired black woman who was an officer in the St. Louis Police Department who recounted in chilling detail how some of her colleagues intentionally tried to arrest black people, particularly black men for felonies, not only with the aim of placing them behind bars, but also depriving them of voting rights, which, of course, is an outgrowth of having a felony on your record. This brings into sharp relief the now notorious comment by the Oaf in the Oval Office, the Manhattan Mussolini, the tangerine man himself, Donald Trump, with his shout-out to the Proud Boys, the self-proclaimed Western chauvinists, who say that they do not necessarily apologize for, in their imagination, creating the, quote, modern world, unquote. <laughs> One of their heroes is the former Chilean fascist leader, Augusto Pinochet. And of late, they've been rallying to the defense of the young man who killed two Black Lives Matter protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in the past few weeks. Sadly and tragically, the Proud Boys are not alone. In the Pacific Northwest, there's the Patriot Prayer. There is the Boogaloo Boys who have been involved in killings in Northern California. You may recall the Michigan militia who invaded the state capitol, apparently at the behest of Mr. Trump in April, and came into face-to-face -face confrontation with the authorities. Unfortunately, many of these right-wing ultras are embittered military veterans. One of the sad lessons they learned in the military is that you try to solve political problems through the barrel of a gun. Recall the embittered veteran Timothy McVeigh, who in 1995 was complicit, if not wholly responsible, for blowing up the federal building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, leading to the deaths of scores, recall as well that during the Liberation War that led to the formation of the modern-day state of Zimbabwe, between 1965 and 1980, and particularly after 1975, after the United States lost the war in Indochina, you had thousands of embittered U.S. military veterans 
who migrated to Southern Africa to fight on the side of the racists, and many of them are still buried there. This also helps to dramatize another inflammatory claim made by Mr. Trump at the debate where he suggested that the GOP is going to be mobilizing 50,000 poll watchers to monitor the elections on the first Tuesday in November. Recall that in the past, when the GOP has, quote, monitored, unquote, elections, they've targeted black and brown communities with tactics of intimidation. In fact, this led to a court case in a consent decree where the GOP pledged not to participate in such sordid tactics again, but unfortunately the consent decree has expired. The other upshot of this entire controversy is that it removed from the headlines the bombshell expose in the New York Times that suggested that in 2016 and 2017, Mr. Trump paid about $750 in income taxes each year, and before that, hardly anything. Even if he can pardon himself, that'll only relieve him of federal charges with regard to income tax evasion. It does not relieve him of facing a possible prosecution by the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance or the New York State Attorney General Letitia James, a progressive black woman. And so this gives Mr. Trump further incentive to try to prevail in these elections by any means necessary, because it'll be more difficult to prosecute him if he is still sitting in the Oval Office. And the same holds true for his advisor and daughter, Ivanka Trump, which the New York Times story exposed also as being possibly subject to tax evasion charges. So this then brings us to another story that appeared in The Atlantic by former Washington Post journalist Barton Gelman that laid out in detail how Mr. Trump and the GOP are planning an electoral college coup. Uh, That is to say, because of this archaic and antiquated electoral college that determines who's the victor, of course, the person who gets the most votes does not necessarily prevail as Hillary Rodham Clinton, who got three million more votes than Mr. Trump in 2016, could well attest. The GOP in certain so-called red states, the authorities may decide to ignore the popular will if Mr. Trump loses in, say, Arizona and Florida and other states and send electors to the Electoral College who are pledged to vote for Mr. Trump and turn the election over to him. And then if the case is litigated, it'll go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, which presumably will have at least a 6-3 majority that will validate this coup. Uh, this, this is the grim prospect that we're facing, so you may want to buckle your seatbelt. Well, I, I guess my seatbelt's been buckled for a few years now, but you mentioned the Brennan Center report about uh, white supremacists in police departments. And Michael German of the Brennan Center was one of the people testifying on Tuesday. And he said, and also the chair, uh, Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, said something that was really pretty shocking to me. And and actually, I think I'll link to our website, uh, the document. But they said that the FBI released this 2006 assessment where they revealed the dangers of white supremacists in the 
U.S. police departments. This is 14 years ago, but basically buried the report. And now in 2020, they're basically disavowing the report. They refused to testify. They refused to come to the hearing. And so it was left up to representatives, like you mentioned, Ocasio-Cortez, to actually bring out the facts in the report and also the fact that in it, they wanted to stress the, the danger that these white supremacists pose to investigating them as opposed to the dangers that they pose to the black and brown communities that they are terrorizing. So that was one thing. And then when you try to have a conversation with European descendants here in this country about uh, racism, very often I find it's hard for them to see history for what it is because they see it as a denigrating their parents or their grandparents. And when I heard the testimony of the sheriff from Pima County in Arizona and also of the the ranking minority member, I think it's Chip Roy of Texas, you know, he, he said that. And, you know, we played parts of the hearing, you know, right before our conversation here. He says how his grandfather was a Texas Ranger and he's always been told that his father, grandfather was not a racist. You know, I stand by my grandfather. That's what he said actually in the hearing. And so it reminded me of that, um, how it's really so difficult to have these conversations with European descendants here. And the same hearing Chip Roy say that this week, it just reminded me of that whole white people not being able to accept the history of racism. Well, beyond the personal, there's a deeper political problem, which I'm afraid to say also infects a goodly number of those on the U.S. left, which is overestimating the democratic potential in the United States, despite slavery, despite genocide against the Native Americans, despite decades of apartheid, and over-dramatizing the supposed democratic potential of, say, the Bill of Rights, even though it did not necessarily apply to victimized communities, such as Native American communities, the black and brown communities. And so I'm afraid to say we're about to pay a heavy price for those overestimations. Yes, and also uh, the same estimation estimate of of that kind of potential was is also what the the retired uh, detective sergeant who you mentioned from St. Louis who testified on Tuesday. We have her earlier in the show just saying how people keep talking as if you know racism can be reformed, and she says. Uh, you, you can't reform racists, you know, you have to, they have to be fired. They have to be uh, off the force. And, and she says that based on her experience down to being, receiving death threats from these people uh, for exposing them and exposing uh, even possible murders that they've committed against black people. Yeah, that was particularly chilling, her recounting of, of these murders that took place in St. Louis, which happens to be my hometown, by the way. Right, right. So we're rapidly running out of time. I know that you may have uh, an international story that you always try to get in. Well, yes, I'm sure listeners have at least heard about the conflict in Central Asia on the borders with Europe, speaking of the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is an Armenian 
enclave that sits inside neighboring Azerbaijan, all of that region was part of the former Soviet Union, and I should disclose that I visited uh, Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan, in the past, and this issue, I must say, hits home with me, because right now there's a World War II-type conflict that's erupting with tanks, fighter jets, rocket launchers, dozens, scores, perhaps hundreds of casualties. The danger right now is that major powers will be drawn into it. For example, the Turks are backing the Azeris, and this is in the context of increased conflict between Turkey and France, not only with regard to this conflict at hand, but also with regard to Libya, with regard to Greece, with regard to Israel, where France is a major backer of Israel, and the Turks are a major backer of Hamas in the Gaza Strip. In fact, their military forces, that is to say, French and Turks almost came to blows in the eastern Mediterranean just a few days ago. It reminds me, I'm afraid to say, of how World War I started, which was in an obscure corner of Europe in the Balkans, but quickly drew in major powers, once again with France and Turkey on opposite sides. You should stay tuned. Yeah, I, I'll try to stay tuned. There's so much happening here. I can't imagine uh, people in the United States... With everything we're going through right now, we can't even get, you know, masks and, you know, healthcare, you know, committing any resources at all to this uh, small corner of the world that, right, you know, but stranger things have happened. And like you said, whole world wars have started over something so obscure, right? Correct. Right. Well, we will stay tuned. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Thank you to Chantel James, to Thomas O'Rourke, and Professor Gerald Horn. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show at On The Ground Show on Facebook, Twitter, or on Patreon.com. Our new podcast, On The Ground with Esther Averam, that's On The Ground W. Esther Averam is on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On The Ground. And if you check out the podcast, please give us a nice rating. The music we played this hour included DC's own Isaiah Rusan, Cloud Blue, Childish Gambino, This Is America, Fotech, End of the Line, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.